0: Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman, in part of his seven-week presentation, Matthew and Luke on Jesus, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is part one of week six, titled Temple, recorded in March 2013. Recorded in March 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman.
1: Uh, So tonight, we are talking about Jesus and the temple. We've talked about Matthew and Luke's treatment of the birth and baptism of Jesus, of his sermons, of his parables, of... What did we do after the parables? I think that may have been... And the disciples, right? The representation of the disciples. Now we're going to talk about what happens... Uh, in the temple of Jerusalem when Jesus comes there. Why is this a significant event for the evangelists? Well, we can answer that in a couple parts. The first reason why it's significant, this would be true uh, not just for Christians but for atheists, is that it's what gets him killed. What Jesus does in the temple, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is what gets him killed. Uh, So even at the bare historical level, it's a significant topic. Uh, But there is a greater topic because we know that for Matthew and Luke, the center of Jesus' message is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has drawn near, repent, and believe in the good news. That was how Jesus summed up his message. Of course, we have elaborations of that in his sermons, but that's the key framework of everything that he says and does. And what is the kingdom of God? It is God's power exercised on behalf of Israel, his people, and more generally of the whole world, of all humanity, but in the symbolism, in the language of the the grammar, if you will, of salvation history in the Old Testament and the New, uh, the place the place where all of the power of God is uh, concentrates around and is to manifest itself from the center of the kingdom is the temple in Jerusalem. So what happens there in Matthew and Luke is of great significance to understanding the implications, the ramifications of Jesus' message. Now, what, do we, what can we say about uh, the temple as the center of God's kingdom, the place, the architectural sacrament, as I like to put it, of God's kingdom in the world, of God's salvation? Well, it goes all the way back, as does everything that has to do with the kingdom of God, to the Exodus. Here's a quiz question. When um, Moses was sent to tell the Pharaoh to let God's people go, uh, where were they to be let go to? Any recollection? Where, where Did he just say, let me have the people and, and I'll go wherever I want them to? No, he said, let them come into the wilderness... Three days to the mountain, the mountain, uh, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, to do what? To worship God, to serve God, just as they were serving or working for Pharaoh. So now they would they would serve God at his mountain. So in other words, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is Lord of all the world. He is Lord of all creation, the creator of heaven and earth. But he expresses his lordship in a particular spot within creation, and that is Mount Sinai. That's where the covenant is established, we know that. But what's more significant for our purposes is God doesn't stay at Mount Sinai in the Bible. According to some of the Psalms in the Old Testament that praise the might and glory of God, they speak of God's going forth from Mount Sinai and changing his residence, as it were, from one mountain to another. And the other mountain is Mount Zion in Jerusalem. They sound kind of similar in English, Sion uh, and, uh, and uh, Sinai, Sinai and Sion, Sinai and Zion. But God changes from one mountain to the other. Now, what was the significance of Mount Sinai? Well, if you remember, when Moses first went there and encountered God, um, the, uh, the beeper went on and it said, you know, Moses, take your shoes off because this is holy ground. In other words, the mountain is understood to be a temple, a place, a sacred place, a place of worship. And in the famous Song of the Sea that the Israelites sing commemorating God's deliverance of them, their salvation from Egypt, um, they speak of the mountain of God's own possession. Uh, the sanctuary which his own hands have created. Uh, This, in the context of the story, is Mount Sinai. So all that Mount Sinai is, as the place where God is seen, this is the other part, it's not just that this is a holy place and you worship God there and you see the covenant there, it's where Israel sees, or rather doesn't see, if you want to be technical about it, they don't see God there, uh, but they don't see God there because that's where the cloud is the cloud and the fireworks and all that 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 signify god's presence they can't see god through the cloud or through the fire but it is the fire and the cloud that make god's presence known so this is also part of an essential function of any temple in the ancient world it's a place where you go to see the deity whichever deity that temple is dedicated to so in the bible mount sinai is the dwelling place of god it is the place where you come to encounter God, to see God in, what, in, whatever, in whatever way that means, in whatever way God allows you to see him. But in other words, it's not just about something up here. It's about something here. It's about our whole experience of God, our whole sensory being encounters God in this place. So all that significance of that mountain is transferred to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, but not until King David offers to build God a house on that mountaintop. And when we say mountaintop, we have to be careful because in America, mountain means like Mount McKinley. Uh, If you've ever been to Jerusalem or seen pictures of it, you will not see any huge mountains there. Uh, You will see a little rise, (laughs) which is called Mount Zion. It's where the Temple Mount currently is. Um, But anyway, this this mountain, so-called, David offered to build God a house there, a dwelling place. And God was very pleased with this. He had not commanded David to do that. This was a gift of David to God. And God said, well, I'll build you a house, namely a dynasty, and your son will be my dwelling place. And so we have King Solomon around about the 9th century BC, building God a house. And again, the significance of this in terms of the language of Jesus' message cannot be underrated. Um, the word for temple, the, temple is a Latin word, not, a, not in the Hebrew Bible, Temple in the Hebrew Bible is either bayit, which means simply the house, or it is Hekal, which means palace. It's the dwelling place of the king. So this is the, the architectural sacrament, the architectural sign of God's power, his royal power exercised on Israel's behalf. Even when we go to the whole concept of the Messiah, the anointed surrogate of God, the human being whom God anoints, appoints to act as king on his behalf in Psalm 2, uh, God just doesn't appoint a king. He appoints a king and establishes that king on Mount Zion, on my mountain. So the temple signifies God's presence, his power, And it signifies the, or at least it goes along together with the whole notion of the Messiah, God's human surrogate, uh, who will act on his behalf in bringing about his kingdom. So, with all that in mind, we can easily see why Jesus' entrance into the temple in Matthew and Luke is significant to the storyline. It's where the story climaxes, it's where the conclusion of the story will be determined. We already know this from that collection of scriptures which is quoted uh, by all the gospel authors, by all the synoptic gospel authors, at the beginning of the story. I'm sending my messenger before, me to prepare, before you to prepare your way um, from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Malachi, the Old Testament prophet. Um, and if you read into the next verse of that, it says, And my messenger will come suddenly into the Lord's temple and will refine the priest's We'll refine the priesthood, reform the priesthood, reform the people's ways, so that when I, God, come to judge, I will not condemn, I will be able to forgive. So everything that has been said by John the Baptist, by Jesus, up until this point is leading up to this moment. Okay, so with that in mind, with that as our backdrop, let's then talk about what happens in the temple. Now, this is one of those common stories that we find in all four Gospels, not just the synoptic Gospels. In all four Gospels, Jesus does something in the temple. The Gospels disagree over when this something happened. In John's Gospel, this happened at the beginning of Jesus' career, not the climax of it. So for John, this is not a climactic event, but a representative event of who Jesus is. We're not going to talk about that today, because that's a whole other can of worms. But all of them agree on what Jesus did, more or less. John has a few slightly different details, but they all agree on what Jesus did. And it involved two things. First of all, a note about architecture. Now, if you've seen, again, it's too bad we're not in the downstairs room because I could show pictures, but if you imagine your mind's eye, a picture of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, which is the great trapezoidal platform that uh, that mounts um, Zion on the eastern side of Jerusalem, which is currently occupied by, on the one end the southern end is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and in the middle is the uh, the the uh, the Kubra al sakra the Dome of the Rock, uh, which is supposedly where Abraham was commanded to sacrifice his son to God. Uh, so it symbolizes the place of sacrifice. Um, but in any case, that whole platform is what the New Testament authors call the temple area. And now, unfortunately, in many English translations, a distinction is not made between two key terms in the Gospels, what can be translated the temple area and what can be translated the sanctuary. The temple area is the entire platform. If you've seen the wailing wall with the great stones, that's the corner of the temple platform. That's the temple area or the sacred precinct, if you will. It's like St. Peter's Square for Catholics. It's the whole area around St. Peter's. That's where Jesus performs his action. The other term, which is often translated indiscriminately temple, is the building itself, which is at the north end of this platform and is sometimes more correctly called the sanctuary, which is the actual building where everything takes place, where sacrifices are offered, where songs or hymns are sung to God where offerings might be made. Jesus does what he does outside, away from that structure, in the temple area. It's usually understood he's doing this at the southern end, way on the other side of the, from, uh, from the temple itself, from the sanctuary itself. Okay, so what does he do? He does two things, basically. All the evangelists say that he, uh, he prevented people from doing two things. He prevented people from selling animals and he prevented people from exchanging currency. He prevented them from selling animals and from exchanging currency. Now, what animals did he prevent them from selling? Well, John adds stuff about cattle and sheep, so he becomes like sort of a cattle wrestler. But um, in, in the other Gospels, in Matthew, uh, Matthew at least, Matthew speaks about doves. Now, that's not incidental. Cattle, sheep, doves are the primary cuisine of God as the one who receives Israel's offerings, Israel's sacrifices. It doesn't mean that uh, that the sacrifices are all burnt up. Often most sacrifices actually uh, in um, in the temple were consumed by the people offering them and by the priests. So it's, it's how you celebrated a meal uh, that involved meat, is you offered the meat, uh, the animal in sacrifice to God first, and then you partook of the portion that was due to you. Um, but anyway... All of these are sacrificial animals. It's not strange that people should be selling sacrificial animals right outside a place of animal sacrifice. You need sacrificial animals to offer sacrifice to God. It's what a temple is for. It's what God commands to do. Commands the Israelites to do in the temple, is to sacrifice animals to him. Now, of course, you, there's, nothing, there's nothing against people bringing animals from outside the temple in to sacrifice them. That's fine but they have to be of a certain kind. They have to be free of blemish. Sacrificial animals have to be without disease. They have to be without injury in order to be a fit sacrifice. That was the whole issue in the book of Malachi, about the priests not offering um, unblemished sacrifices, unblemished animals. So it's a big deal. Now, you can, you can take the risk and lead your, do- lead your sheep, say, up the steps, to the temple mount and walk the sheep through the crowds to the temple, uh, to the sanctuary itself to sacrifice it. What happens if, you know, someone's pushing a cart through and it runs over the, the, uh, the sheep's leg and injures it? Too bad. You've got to take it out. You can't use it. So, in other words, there's a risk factor involved. There's a, there's, there's a good logistical reason, even during normal sacrificial times, why you would be selling animals in this area. Because priests are on hand to check them, to, make sh- to certify them. Yeah, this you could sacrifice this. Even more so during the great festivals, the great pilgrimage feasts, of which this was one. This meaning the time when Jesus was in Jerusalem, which was right around this time of year for us, right? Passover, Easter, right? Um, so Jesus is, uh, and because you got upwards of a million, maybe several millions of Jews going through the temple in one day, everyone has to sacrifice their animal to consume it for Passover, and if. It takes too long to get your animal there, or if the animal dies on the way, you might not be able to participate in the festival. So again, there are many good logistical reasons why the people running the temple would want to make it efficient, to make it effective as a means for people bringing, able to, uh, to bring animals to sacrifice. So presumably, the priests uh, were behind this, uh, this arrangement. Now what about this other thing, currency exchange, money changing? Um, well, again, this is a bit more vague, but there's a good reason for exchanging currency in the temple. Is because every Jew, every male Jew, male adult Jew up to a certain age, was obligated every year, especially this was usually done during the pilgrimage feasts when you went to Jerusalem, was obligated to offer a half shekel, a silver coin, for the upkeep and subsidizing of, of, uh, of the, the operation of the temple. How many people offer money when they go to Mass every Sunday? One person. Wow, this is a stingy y- Okay, two people. Three, four, five. Okay, looks like most of you probably do it or have at one point. You know, or or you, you do it you know, by, by, by mail or something. There's nothing strange about that, right? This is a way of showing our solidarity with the church that we worship at. It shows our, our, uh, our, uh, our reverence for what happens there. Uh, our desire to support it. Well, that's exactly how Jews felt and in the time of Jesus in order to make that annual contribution, notice they only had to contribute once a year. We have to contribute every Sunday. They had it easy. <laughs> to do this, the coins that were offered had to be of a certain had to be of a certain denomination and standard of silver standard. It was called the Tyrian shekel. Shekel was a standard silver coin. Tyrian, because these coins were minted in the, the nearby maritime city of Tyre for this specific purpose. For one thing, you're not supposed to have um, coinage that has idolatrous images on it, right? Because you're giving it to, the, uh, to a god who is without images. And it has to be of, you have to show that you've, you've given the actual um, required amount. You're not skimping by you know, making the coin lighter or anything. So it's a matter of uniformity matter of uniformity and respect. Now, if you may remember, there's a story in um, the Gospels where Jesus picks up a coin in the temple It happens to have an image of the emperor on it. That's a problem, but that's not the temple tax. That's not the, the half shekel contribution. So whatever that coin was doing there, um, you needed to have the right currency. And what happens if you're coming from you know, Spain, let's say. You're on a three- or four- or five-month pilgrimage from Spain, and you didn't happen to stop by the city of Tyre on the way down. You're at the temple, you have coins, but they're not the right kind. You have to change them somehow. Now, maybe you could do it in the city somewhere, but maybe you won't have time for that, with a million-plus people walking through the temple and you having to get through there that day. So I'm just trying to point out that what Jesus is attacking when he overturns the, the, the tables of the money changers and drives out the animals, what he's attacking is not something that on the face of it would be aberrant in any way. It's exactly what you would expect in a temple area. One of those Jesus movies way back when, for me way back when, I think before I was born with you know, sort of Max von Sydow as the Aryan Christ, um, he, in that cinematic retelling of the story, they have Jesus overturning things in the place of sacrifice, And they have him quoting Paul, of all things. (laughs) So there's a lot of sort of misconceptions about the significance of what Jesus would have been doing in the context of that temple area. Clearly, Jesus didn't like it. And we actually know that other rabbis of the time didn't like it either. There uh, There were some, probably the priests again, who were very keen on having a temple system work efficiently. But there were probably also others people who are extremely pious, for example, like Jesus and like other rabbis. And I'm just simply reconstructing this on the basis of of Rabbi Hillel, who is the story we know about, another famous contemporary of Jesus. Rabbi Hillel said that uh, people ought to own the animal that they sacrifice before they enter into the sacred precinct because that animal will die for them. That animal uh, is not just just a, uh, a convenience, it's... Their own salvation. It's their way of reconciling themselves to God. So the rabbi said, you really ought, as a matter of reverence, you really ought to own the animal before you cross over this boundary. Uh, in other words, it's a really, it's a turf dispute between the priests and the rabbis, and Jesus seems to be siding with the rabbis. This is another important point. What Jesus is doing here is not something that all Jews would have sort of been you know, uh, uh, wringing uh, their hands over. No, probably many Jews of his day, maybe not the majority, would have said, you know, right on, Jesus, we're with you at this. In fact, it says the crowds were amazed at what he was doing. Not amazed in, in a shock sense, but amazed in the way that they're amazed elsewhere at his teaching. Yeah, right on. So I was, what we seem to have here, before we even look at what the, what the gospel authors put on his lips to explain what he's doing, we seem to have a dispute within Judaism, if you will, within different groups who had different ideas, not about what the temple is for, but about the propriety of the temple area. Do we have things, when we go to church, do we have a sense that there are certain things that you could do in the, in the gathering area, but not in the sanctuary? Yeah. We have, we have scruples, you know, some things you should do in here that you shouldn't do outside, and vice versa. Well, Jews did too, and they had disputes over this. So it seems that it's very easy simply historically to explain or to imagine what Jesus is doing here, he's taking aside in an intramural dispute. But how do the and, and so for this reason, um later readers of the Gospels have described this as Jesus's cleansing of the temple. It makes perfect sense, especially if you read it with the background of Malachi. Remember that prophet uh who spoke of God sending a messenger to the temple to cleanse the priesthood? Fits very nicely, but that's not the passage that any gospel author quotes or alludes to to explain Jesus' action. So what I'm going to suggest here tonight is that we can sort of bracket perhaps the historical meaning of what Jesus' action was all about, and then we can ask what deeper significance, what further significance are the evangelists imputing to it? Now, we're not going to deal with John's gospel, who agrees that this is a temple cleansing. Take these things out of my father's house. Stop making it a marketplace. That seems to be fitting very nicely into this intramural dispute among Jews of the time. Not so with Mark and his imitators. Uh, In Mark, followed by Matthew and Luke, and the the description of what Jesus does is basically taken from Mark. Matthew and Luke shave bits of it off at various places, but, but what Jesus says is basically derived from Mark. He quotes Scripture, He doesn't say, get these things out of my father's house, stop making a marketplace. He quotes scripture, and that's all he does. What is the scripture? What are the scriptures he quotes? Well, just like Mark, who begins his story with a conflation, a combination of different scriptures, so Jesus' explanation of his actions is also a conflation of two scriptures. The first comes from chapter 56 of Isaiah, the prophet, the other comes from chapter 7 of Jeremiah the prophet. So two prophetic texts from the Old Testament, Jesus quotes or summarizes and blends together to, de- to develop a new message. Well, what are these texts? The words that are reported by Mark in their fullest form are, uh, my father's house, or it is written, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations but you have turned it into a cave of brigands or a den of thieves, as it's sometimes translated. The first half of that statement, uh, this house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, that's from Isaiah 56. The second half, but you have turned it into a den of brigands, is from Jeremiah 7. Let me take these two apart and let's just examine them on their own, see what they mean in their own context, and see what they might mean if Jesus put them together or if Mark put them together for Jesus. It seems pretty clear that what we have here is a tradition of something Jesus did, but there was no clear tradition on what he said, and so the gospel authors had to, um, in their own imagination uh, and guided by the Holy Spirit, to to discern what was the significance of this uh, by ascribing words to him. Now, of course, you know, Jesus may really have quoted scripture or he may really have said what he said in John's gospel, but we don't know. What we can't ask again is what do the scriptures he quotes in Matthew and Luke mean. So, what what did these scriptures mean? Well, the first part about the temple being a house of prayer for all the Gentiles, all the nations, um, is part of a the opening volley, the opening opening homily of the third part of the book of Isaiah, which is about the restored temple. The temple has been restored. The community is is rebuilt. We are now worshiping God in our land, uh, and the, the the opening volley of God's message about the temple is this. Is a house of prayer not just for the Jews, but for all nations who observe my Sabbaths and my covenant. Whoever observes my Sabbath and my covenant, says God, may worship here, even if they are non-Jewish and even if they are a eunuch. There's some legislation in the the Torah where God forbids eunuchs from participating in the worship of the temple, um, partly because... They somehow fall outside the covenant of Abraham because they cannot be circumcised, or at least they can't produce offspring, right? So the author of Isaiah takes two outsider categories and says, no, they too will have access to this house of prayer if they follow the covenant, just like any Jew would. So it's a a statement of the universal accessibility and purpose of God's place of worship, this restored place of worship. And to make a, make a point here, when he says um, it'll be called a house of prayer, Jesus is not, if he knows anything about Isaiah, he's not saying it's a house of prayer, not a house of sacrifice. Because all you need to do is read the next verse or two of Isaiah, and you'll see that house of prayer and house of sacrifice go together. You do both. They both have to do with offering something to God. So this isn't a polemic against animal sacrifice. At least, I don't think that's how the evangelists understand it. So that's the first thing. It's a statement of the inclusive nature of this place for all peoples.
0: Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.